Hi, everyone, and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and our guest tonight is Kristen Baer. Before I introduce Kristen, uh, thank you all for tuning in, and I want to let you know that you can listen to Writer Mother Monster as a podcast on all major audio platforms or read the interview transcript on writermothermonster.com. If you enjoy the episode, please consider becoming a patron or patroness on Patreon to help make the series possible. Uh, we want to invite you also to please chat with us during the interview. Your comments and questions will appear in our broadcast studio and we'll weave them into our conversation. Now I'm excited to introduce Kristen. Kristen Bear's new novel, Agatha Arch is Afraid of Everything, is a People magazine best new book. Published in November 2020, it received a starred review in Publishers Weekly. Booklist called it hilarious and said that readers of Lori Gelman and Abby Waxman, who enjoy irreverent moms who say what everyone else is thinking, will love the ride. As Kristen Bear O'Keefe, she has published two novels, The Art of Floating and Thirsty. Her essays and articles about China, bears, adoption, magical realism, and off-the-plot expats have appeared in the Gettysburg Review, Flyway, Journal of Writing and Environment, Writer's Digest, and other publications. As a writer and writing instructor, her nature has landed her in classrooms and conferences around the world. A native Pittsburgher, Kristen now lives north of Boston with her husband and two kids and describes writer motherhood. Writer Motherhood in three words as are they asleep? Welcome, Kristen. Hi, Laura. How are you? Kristen, I'm well. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Thank you for joining us. Um, so I mentioned before the interview, I'm reading Agatha Arch right now, and it is. Uh, I love you provide insight into um, motherhood and the sort of voyeuristic nature of um, mothers watching other mothers. And we'll get to that. But tell us first about your family. Who lives in your house? <laughs> so I have my husband, Andrew, um, and my two kids. I have a seven-year-old and a 13-year-old. And we have a new dog um, named Zuma, who just joined the family about a month ago. And she's a five-year-old poodle. Oh, <laughs> yeah, she's, that a, a, she's a sweetheart. Oh, pets are important, I think, especially for kids to have growing up. Yes. Yeah, and so yeah. how how is your family coping with um, this <laughs> strange situation that we've found ourselves in? Are your kids in uh, virtual school? Are they going a couple days a week to school? How's that working for you? So we have been in remote school since whatever last March or whenever this started um my second grader and then my older one is in seventh grade and she just started hybrid so she's in two days a week at school now Mm -hmm. um about three or four weeks ago so I you know it's been completely nuts (laughs) (laughs) I have been on leave from my day job since September uh-huh. Um, because there were just way too many things going on. So I'm one of those statistics right now. Um, obviously I feel lucky that we're able to do it. Um, but it is not as comfortable as usual. So, yeah. you know, it's definitely affected things for sure. Yeah. What is your day job when, when you were on board? I, w- I work in the communications department at Phillips Academy. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, yep. So, so writing. um, writing. Yep. Yep, I'm in a marketing and communications department myself for an arts organization. So it's um an know. interesting position to have as a writer, right? Maybe yes. like the same yeah. brain space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're always competing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were they always competing before you had kids, the day job and the writing job? Um, well, I've gone in and out from teaching writing. Um, which I do sometimes um, to communications. I kind of go back and forth throughout the years. Uh, 
and they they sometimes they work together and sometimes they you know don't um <laughs> yeah and time is obviously a factor you know with two kids there's yeah. not as much time um so headspace is a hot commodity yeah definitely you know? even before a pandemic but much less now when everyone's yeah. in the same space absolutely so i get up yeah I mean, the only time I have headspace is in the middle of the night. So I get up at three every day to write. Oh, wow. And what time do you I go to bed? Then. I try to be asleep by 930, 10 o'clock at the latest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, sleep is also a hot commodity. <laughs> yes. Those two things. Um, but it's the only time, you know, my little guy is up usually by 530. Yeah. So. I try to squeeze in as much as I can possibly get. Yeah. Are you able to find time throughout the day at all, like little pockets, or is that mainly just your one time to get in? That's my one time. I can do some social media, you know, when I'm not monitoring second grade or seventh Mm -hmm. grade. Um, But any kind of deep work, you know, I need that quiet, still house when nobody else's energy is interrupting. So that's yeah. when I get it. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to put it, other people's energy, um, because it does take such dedicated energy to get big chunks of writing done, right? And yeah. your kids are so energetic and, and have so much energy that's like force fields kind of. Yeah, exactly. And even if they're <clears throat> engaged in something, their energy. And I've always been like this. Like I've always needed, I've always gotten up early to write even before kids, because I just like when the whole world is still. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the pandemic and, you know, my husband's working at home and they're here full time. There's just always energy. And yeah, I just have to find those pockets. So yeah, yeah. I figure I'll see oh, yeah. when I'm 90. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you know, I used to do the same thing and get up before work. I'd get up at that three, get like four, five, and write in the morning. My husband was out. Um, and then when my daughter was born, I quickly realized I couldn't do that when she was a newborn. I couldn't get up because yeah. sleep becomes so crucial. <laughs> And it broke me of that ability to get up early. And now I sort of soak up as much sleep as I possibly can in the morning. Did you find that experience as well when your kids were young? Or were you able to kind of, um, if you weren't able to get up early for a while, at what point were you able to again? When did that ability kick back in? Yeah. Um, It probably took at least a year with each kiddo, you know. But I still like that inclination is always there. But I'll tell you what, like if I let myself like I don't need an alarm, I just wake up at three automatically. But Mm -hmm. if I let myself sleep in one day, the next day, my body wants to sleep in, you know, so I definitely Mm -hmm. have trained it. Um, So it would I think it would probably happily go back to sleeping past three. Um, But yeah. yeah. It's Another muscle year. memory. <laughs> yeah. yeah is, maybe the pandemic is, yeah. isn't the time to, to worry about that. I, I'm you hearing know, so many people know. say they're just not getting any sleep. So you might as well yeah. write if you're not asleep, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Plus, there's a whole might, Twitter world out there, you know, yes. at 3 and 4 a.m. that you can connect with. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. I've been having insomnia, too. It's on the other end where I can't get to sleep. And so I'm lying there and it will at, like... 2 a.m. tweet and say hi who's up and <laughs> so many people who are just awake yep yep if I true. wait another hour yep. I can talk to you on Twitter you could yes yeah yeah there's, there's a couple people who are like that night owls who we overlap just at that 3 a.m. hour so yep yeah pop in it's a whole world Definitely. hey everyone you heard <laughs> invitation to tweet at us That's at right. 2 a.m. 2 30 <laughs> Um, do you mind That's if I true. ask you a little bit about COVID um, specifically with your family? You were telling me that your whole family got COVID, right? We did. We did. Um, and we were so careful, you know, kids remote school, Yeah. only my husband going shopping, but somehow it made its way into our house. And um, 
it was in November. It was right. It was the week before Thanksgiving that it hit my husband first. Um, and he ended up in the hospital for three days. Um, he had the shortness of breath and the pulse ox that went down and, um, but then it's, it's such a weird illness in that it hit each one of us differently. You know, with mm-hmm. me, I was convinced I had a sinus infection. I had a telehealth visit with my, my doctor and I, I, I was in so much pain, like sinus pain. It was insane. She's like, you have COVID, go get tested. I'm like, no, I have a sinus infection. Give me an antibiotic. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then my little guy had the classic, um, kids version where he just puked everywhere. And oh. had fever and was had the worst body aches. His neck was just, it was awful. Um, and then my daughter had the mildest. She had headaches hmm. and just was tired. So oh. each one of us, it hit us differently. And um, it took us, it took us a good while to get through it, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're talking about um, virtual classrooms and, um, losing jobs and um, figuring out when to write while you're in the midst of insomnia and all these things. But then there's the whole health aspect of, of actually exactly. struggling through an illness. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. to be sick while your kids are sick, you know, it's like who was taking care of home, you know, like cause yeah. the husband was really sick. Um, and I was probably, I, you know, you know, moms, we just, we just muscled through. <laughs> exactly. Know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, cleaning up the puke, taking care of the one who can't breathe properly. You know, it was just, it was, it was crazy. Um, really tough. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm grateful I mean, that we all made it and, you know, there's so many people who've had it much worse, but, um, yeah, I don't wish it on us or anyone again. No. And it's just such a hyper example, I think, of, um, one's probably not worse fear one's a a very um urgent fear as a mother of falling ill at the same time as your children and not being able to care for them I have that paranoia absolutely Mm -hmm. I just remember there was a couple days when I literally couldn't stay awake like and he he was you know puking and I I was trying to stay awake and I'm lying on his bed and I just kept falling asleep. He's like, I need you. And I'm like, I was talking, you know, like when you go into that kind of dream state and I was talking about, I don't know, monkeys or lions or he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I don't know. I'm asleep. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It is so challenging. And you know, then the doctor says to you on the phone, you know, this can escalate very quickly. Make sure you have a backup plan and who's going to come if you, you know, and you're like, Oh my God, like this could get seriously fast, you know? I'm Um, so happy or grateful that it, it didn't for you guys. Um, although what you suffered through is awful in its own right. Um, but, but we've made it and everyone's healthy again. So yeah. Yeah. No, but I think driving me nuts in the normal motherly way. There you go. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. But no, I think it gets at a um, a primal mothering fear. Um, And I remember when um, my daughter was about five months old, I think, and it was the dead of winter and my um, I got sick first. It was probably a really bad Mm. flu or something. And I was completely debilitated. I could not move. And then my husband got it. Um, and I was slightly recovered enough to be able to call my parents and say, I need help because she yeah. was, my daughter was, she couldn't even sit up by herself. And oh they came and, and cared for her while we essentially just were out in right. the other room. And right. ever since then, my, my poor husband has panic attacks every time there's any illness <laughs> oh, that floats no. around. He's just like, I, yeah. what would happen? What, you know, if we both can't take care of her? I'm like, exactly. Okay. But we yeah. have a backup plan. And why but. these backup systems are so important, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, people don't have them. And we, you know, I have my older sister lives in Maine, so she's the closest. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, you know, no family right within quick driving distance. I mean, she's only yeah. an hour and a half. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, these backup systems are super important. Yeah. And I think the pandemic has revealed that to us even more than usual. Mm-hmm. The whole it takes a village um, yes. saying, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Did even you when we a... got when we got sick and it was Thanksgiving, um, some wonderful people, dear friends, brought us most of our Thanksgiving meal. Um, oh. Even flowers and wine and <laughs> candles, um, and we had brownies delivered from people and groceries delivered from people. Uh, you know, but it's just you know, it's just a crazy thing. Know. It really Thankfully, is. we had toilet paper. <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially, you know, everyone's so funny. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. yeah. And so that kind of leads us to community, um, which is something that in Agatha Arch is um, prevalent in a very different way. That sort of mother's community of the yeah. online Facebook group. Um Tell us about the communities that you have witnessed or been part of as a mother, specifically a writing mother, a mother writer. Yeah. Well, I started writing Agatha Arch when it was after we moved home from China. I was working on another book. My second book had come out um, and I was working on a book that actually takes place in China. And um I was a mom in the U.S. for the first time. And so we came home and I started, you know, we got us involved in some mom groups here, um, some online and some, you know, live and in person. And um, what I quickly realized was that they're, they're, they're very complex entities. You know, they're both wildly supportive and nurturing. And they're also something that can just cut you to the quick in seconds, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a couple of incidents and, you know, misfires in terms of trying to get involved in, in groups, um, this character started taking, you know, shape in my head, Agatha, and I, uh, I couldn't not listen to her. You know, she kept talking, um, and she was in a Facebook mom's group. Um, so I've been in some wildly wonderful ones, um, and then also bat out of a couple of not so wildly wonderful ones. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of um, a time when a mother's group either helped or hindered you? I have so many examples <laughs> for myself, but. <laughs> well, one of the I, I wrote about this for Scary Mommy a couple months ago, but um, I when we first moved home hooked up with a group um, in a nearby town and they said, we're having a, you know, a get together with the moms and and they were actually a group that is organized around welcoming new people. So it wasn't like trying to break into a group that wasn't, you know, there for the, you know, the new people coming into town. That's what they exist for. So I thought, well, this is perfect. We'll just go and we'll make some new friends and, you know, connect. And so we, we got ready and, um, we showed up at the door and it was just one of those moments where you knew when the door opened that for some reason this person was not going to take to you and you don't know why. It's just that weird, but you're still like, but you're a group that is designed around welcoming new people to town. (laughs) So, you know, we went in and said hello. And the whole group turned and looked at us and turned back around and continued. And we were virtually on our own in this group play date that was designed around welcoming new people to town. And I just was floored and flabbergasted. And it, you know, my daughter was very, she's very intuitive. And she just looked at me and she said, they don't like us. Oh, you know, and so that that stuck with me. Um, And it was very funny because I actually tried a second time with the same group. (laughs) And the only reason it was more manageable was because I accidentally I had a headache. Um, And instead of taking two Tylenol, I actually accidentally took two Tylenol PMs. Oh, no. Before I went. (laughs) So I was like super chill. I was like, okay, this is okay. (laughs) But um, it didn't work out the second time either. We were at a playground and they just basically ignored us. Um, And I thought, well, this is, this is bizarre. Um, So that was one of the really negative ones. Um, 
And then there've been other ones that, you know, have turned into, you know, deep friendships. Um, so. Yeah. It really days. depends on the group, right? Yeah. <laughs> really and does. the group energy, um, you know, and I think sometimes what happens is that after moms are a group that is intended to be public, they become very good friends. And so I think they should just close ranks and say, we're not really that group anymore. We're really a group of friends who want to be together and don't really yeah. aren't really interested in, you know, having a bunch, which is a fine thing. But I think you have to be clear about your intention. Um, this group was not clear about their intention. So, yeah, that's a very funny thing. And women are just weird and funny, you know. Um, yeah, I think women women's I think that's one of the things that interests me more and more as I get older is women's friendships, which also I explore pretty deeply in Agatha. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just fascinated by, you know, what makes a lasting friendship and what do you have to give um, and how much of yourself and, you know, who, who can and who can't and why can't they? And, um, and then the whole, just the cycle of fear, empathy, Fear, anger, and empathy. Like, I think, you know, so many people are afraid, comes out as anger. And if only they can access empathy, it would be so much better. It's kind of one of the, you know, cycles that I just go over and over again in my head. So, Tell me how that plays out specifically in Agatha. Um, so just to set the stage, this is, I mean, you find out pretty early. I'm not ruining anything. No. I don't think. If I say. No. Um, in the first few pages, discovers her husband um, in flagrante with the dog walker from down the street, right? In the in the yeah. shed. In the shed. Or the, yeah. Yeah, in the shed. Um, in the shed. And that she quickly becomes the subject of the local mother's group's scrutiny and judgment. Um, yeah. So how did how did mothering and the experience of women's friendships and uh, being parts of these mother groups play into the the logistics of writing this story. So it's funny because I never intended to write a story about infidelity, but even had infidelity as a as a theme at all. But that's really what starts it off, which is, you know, still interesting to me, like what that where that seed came from. Um, and. Agatha has, you know, the, the title says Agatha Arch is afraid of everything. She's had all these fears her whole life. And her husband, Dax, has protected her. You know, he's been her buffer. He's been her shield. And so she hasn't had to deal with these directly. And, it's, you know, she's she's somebody who. Again, this ang this fear, anger, empathy cycle Um she has these fears, but she has always expressed anger when they come up. So it's an easier way of dealing with the fear. It's, it's kind of another way. It's another Dax. It's another shield. Um, so she's in her Facebook mom group and she is, you know, every Facebook mom group has a provocateur. They have somebody who provokes, who, you know, always says the thing that everybody's thinking, but nobody says out loud. And she is that person. She is the person who just ticks everybody off and who has no patience and has no empathy for, you know, some of the things that the, the women are going through. And but it, it allows her to keep all of these women at a distance. So she's kept Dax really close, her husband. But suddenly he's no longer in the picture. You know, he's cheated on her and he's not there. Um, and so she has to go outside of herself. For the first time. And the Facebook mom group is the natural place to do that because that's the one group she's deeply involved in, even though her involvement is not very positive in the beginning. Um, and so that begins her journey and her, you know, her interaction with these groups. And while she doesn't have a lot of friends in the beginning, it's definitely, you know, part of her journey to to friendship and to acknowledging yeah. some of that. Yeah. What did you learn or um, maybe how do I want to phrase this? What did you learn or um, go deeper um, toward 
in yourself by writing about these issues. And I did not articulate that well, but do you see what I mean? Like in the process of writing this book, did you kind of grapple with some personal um, Mm -hmm. motherhood issues? Oh yeah. You know, one of the, Agatha, she always stops short of, you know, she, she goes very far with her, with her anger and her provocation. (laughs) Um, But she always stops short because of stepping too far over a line because of her boys. She has two boys. Um, and being a mother stops her from going too far into anger. Um, and I think that's, I, you know, if we talk about universals, you know, I think moms have that. It's not an ability. I don't know what the right word for it is, but just that inclination, you know, not to go too far toward any kind of negative emotion because of that protective, you know, it's like the mama bear thing. Um, so that was really interesting to explore, like how far would she go? You know? Um, so for me, that was interesting. And then also again, women's friendships, you know, they, they kind of captivate me. Um, and I think that's probably something I'll keep exploring, um, in my work. I think the next book definitely has some of that as well. Um, yeah. Um, do you have anger that you fear to <laughs> <laughs> that you fear to uh, to go too far into, and why? I think when I was younger, I probably definitely did. Um, I think I was probably had some big big anger things from time to time. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I wasn't raised in a place in a house where we were taught to manage big feelings in really productive ways. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's something that I've really worked on over the years. Um, and I think I've gotten better at, so it's interesting for me to explore that on the page. And also as a mom now in trying to teach my kids very consciously how to process and express big feelings, mm-hmm. you know, is it's not easy. You know, you don't, you're not born with that ability. It's, it's something that you learn, you know, when it's modeled, you know, when it's consciously taught. Um, and with having a 13 year old, you know, with hormones and, um, you know, you, you kind of work through that when they're little and then, you know, that point of where teens are starting to break away emotionally, but at the same time having these surge of emotions, like you, you realize, oh my God, I'm teaching again. You know, like it's not a lesson that you learn once. It's a lesson that you learn over and over again in life, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm terrified. Oops, I'm terrified for my daughter to become 13. I mean, she's four. So we're dealing with the rage of like her not wanting to go to the bathroom because she wants to control her own, you know, bodily functions. <laughs> yes. So that's like one type of rage. Yeah. But I remember being 13 um, so vividly because probably because I wrote about it. I wrote yeah. copious journals. Um, yep. And so I am curious and terrified to see what it will be like from the um, the perspective of a mother of a 13-year-old. Like, what was your experience as a 13-year-old, and how is that playing into the mothering oh of God. a 13-year-old? I was just all emotion, you know. I, Me too. I think I was all emotion from the time I was born, you know. I'm a Pisces, <laughs> you know. Um, and but it's really shot. And I think this is one of the things the pandemic is complicating because my daughter's in seventh grade. This is the time when they're starting to break emotionally, but also physically away from family. So this mm-hmm. is the year when they would have been going downtown by themselves and she and friends, you know, they're doing things on their own. Um, it's not happening. You know, they're with us all the time which is not the natural place for a 13 year old. Um, Mm -hmm. 
it, it so it's definitely complicated by that. Um, but it's also just, so we have this, I don't, I don't remember who taught me this, but so if anybody remembers this, please shout out like, you know, that was me. I told you that, but I use this analogy to a snow globe. So the teen brain, you know, like when she starts, um, getting very emotional and very loud and very expressive, <laughs> um, and just can't control the emotions. Um, I just, I say to my husband, snow globe, snow globe. It's like the brain is like a shaken snow globe and that mm. you're not going to like make any sense. You're not going to be able to communicate. You're not going to be able to get through to them until the snow settles. So mm. she has these periods of just, I am fritzing out and I'm going to yell at you and I'm going to say, you know, mean things and I'm going to, you know, stomp around and slam doors and her brother laughs and thinks it's hilarious and chases her around. Um, but I'm just like snow globe, snow globe, snow globe. Don't respond because if you respond in the moment, it just heightens it, you know, Mm -hmm. then I just wait most of the time. I'm not always perfect um, for it to settle. And then we can, you know, talk. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is not easy. So (laughs) cherish those Mm four-year-old years. (laughs) Yeah. The tantrums about things you can more or less resolve right (laughs) like you i think 13 um just the 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 escalation of the types of issues that um as a mother you must address um yeah and also you know these these things that we're talking about with grown women these you know the behaviors in you know the judgment and the exclusion um that starts so early it yeah. starts so early. And I wish if there's anything I could get rid of in women's lives, it would be that. Mm. It would just be that urge to exclude, that urge to. And again, I, you go back to fear. You know, you're going, you know, you're going to be excluded yourself. So you might as well just exclude somebody else. You know, mm-hmm. if, if it's not you, it's me. Um, and it starts so young and it's so hurtful. It just makes mm-hmm. me nuts. You know, and yeah. so I see it already. You know, I see it in her, her lives and girl groups, and you know, you just want to yeah. shake them. Yeah, yeah. The fact that it's um, that similar drive from the time I see it when my yeah. poor daughter was in um, uh, preschool before COVID time. I mean, even then, you have little cliques of girls, and they said you can't play with me. You right. know. Yeah. And then you see it all the way up to mom's groups of women who shut each other out um, yep. to control and 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 I'm trying not to pass judgment, but to control yeah. um, the sphere of influence in yeah. which we live and, and the exactly. influence we have. So, yeah, it's very insidious. Yeah. Um, did you always write when you were younger? How did you come to write? Yeah, I mean, I've been writing since I was seven. Mm-hmm. It's really strange that my kid is seven because I look at him and I'm like, how in the world? did?" And I knew, like, I announced when I was seven that I was a poet. Nobody should bother me when I was working on my poems, you know. Okay. And, and I remember my mom being like, well, you can't, you can't be a poet. And I'm like, I am. Like, what do you mean I can't? That's just my life now. And it always <laughs> stayed that way. Um and I look at my kid and I'm like, oh, my God, like, how did I know when I was seven? Like, I can't imagine anybody knowing that. But no, I started writing and then I started journaling. You know, when I was seven, I wrote poems. My first poem was mm-hmm. a hummingbird. I'd never seen a hummingbird. I still have that poem somewhere. Um, I wrote obsessively. Like, I just I was obsessed with the poet Sarah Teasdale, mm-hmm. which is not a poet seven, eight-year-olds are usually obsessed by. It's in Dr. Seuss, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I remember sitting on the floor of the library just just reading her poems over and over again and checking them out. Um, And then, I mean, I have so many journals, like, you know, just hundreds of them. And Mm -hmm. then when I got to high school, I started writing um, plays, parodies of my older sister's high school life which I still have. So she and all her friends, I wrote all these plays about them. 
Um, and then as an undergrad, I did all poetry um, there too. And then I didn't switch to fiction until I was in grad school. Really? Um, I, yeah, the first poem I've ever published, I was an undergrad. And it was about, so my grandfather in Pittsburgh worked in the steel mills all his life, um, was a Croatian immigrant. And um, he, uh, here's one of my kids. Um, I, you know, the steel mills shut down and just seeing the effect on him and my great uncles and the, the steel community around us um, just fascinated me. And so I wrote my first poem about that that was published. And that was kind of the seed of my first novel, Thirsty. And so when I got oh. to grad school, that became my first novel. Um, but it started so early, you know, so many years before. And then I switched to fiction at that point. And I do essays, too, but mostly now I do fiction and essays. And I keep meaning to get back to poetry. But I remember I was at, I think I was at Breadloaf, the writers conference and I was still writing both poetry and fiction and this somewhat famous poet um, told me you know male poet um that I couldn't do both and for some reason that really froze me in my process of poetry um hmm. which now just you know irks me um that I allowed that to freeze me um but eventually I'll get back to it Oh my gosh, I have so many questions. Um, first of all, commiseration because in college, um, I, I had wanted to take an essay writing class and he had submitted an essay to, for the class. And, um, this famous essay writing journalist didn't allow me into the class and he didn't give me any reason. He just said, I'm sorry, oh. but like, you, but you, you're not cut out for this class. And so I, <sighs> Did not write nonfiction again for at least 10 years. Yeah. Because this like, yeah, like literally old, um, yep. old fashioned journalist told me, he didn't even tell me straight out. He just sort of like rejected me. And I was like, Oh, I must not be good enough to write nonfiction. Right. right. So exactly. what is it about these like, these p paternalistic, um, um, experts right who tell yes. us we can't do something why does that sit so deeply with us I, I have no idea but I, and it's funny because I'm such a like a mouthy person yes. you know, yeah. otherwise mm -hmm. but when those paternalistic buttheads you know <laughs> would speak to me at mm -hmm. that point you know I I crumbled which yeah. just pisses me off now. Yeah. You know, I'd love to call him up and be like, you, and, yeah. you know, let him have it. Um, but it did inform the way I teach, you know. Tell me more and, about that. And yeah. make me very, oh, and there's the dog. That's okay. Dogs um, are welcome. <laughs> Here's oh. our pooch. <laughs> oh, he's wonderful. This is Zuma. <laughs> like a um, big Muppet. She is like a big Muppet. Um, but I definitely, at this point, you know, whenever I teach, I'm so careful um, with what people are interested in writing, what they what they already write, and what they hope their potential will be. Um, and I never, ever say, nope, that's not going to work for you, you know. Um, and make it a very welcoming, very nurturing um, environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hope that everybody always expands as opposed to shrinks. Um, yeah. So that's how I mean, it's one thing to provide um, helpful criticism, right? Constructive Absolutely. criticism. It's another thing to um, to hold responsibility <laughs> for somebody within a period of their um their writing career at which they're the exactly. most vulnerable and then smash them intentionally right. or otherwise. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, to have those moments to just hold on to that, like, like for me, you know, I think, okay, now what in the world am I holding on to this for like 10 million years for? 
But I, you know, I remember that exact moment, the breakfast, what I was eating, um, Mm-hmm. And just how it stunned me, you know, Dang. and it, it's just, it's so debilitating. And I think, first of all, like, what was his problem with himself mm-hmm. um, that would cause him to feel either threatened or, you know, just want to close ranks as opposed to open them, you yeah. know, and now I know it's a flaw of his, not a flaw of mine. Um, but back then, you know youth and um just learning the ropes just froze me yeah so oh yeah yeah. no you are not alone in that um tell me more about writing journals I so I was also an avid writing journal writer and I have just these like mountains of books um specifically I would say between the years of 12 and 16 those very emotional years that we were just talking about where I chronicled every moment of my existence as if it was like very urgent to get it on paper. (laughs) And I'm wondering how that will come out later. I've seen it come out in my writing as far as like how it's informed stories I've written about nostalgia and youth and like puberty. I'm interested to see how it might inform my mothering when my daughter reaches Mm -hmm. those ages. So can you talk a little bit about how the process of documenting your youth has played into both your writing and your mothering? Well, the first thing I hope is that nobody ever reads them. (laughs) They're so funny. Um, You know, I I think of that, you know, you think about like, why, why do we have that urge to retell um, like what we've already experienced? Uh, you know, and it's, I, I honestly, like, I think about them all the time. I remember exact lines. I remember, like, this is how I, like, I dream like a, like a crazy person. Like, people tell me, you, you shouldn't tell people your dreams because they're so weird. But I write them all down. And so I think this is how I've been able to deepen my own dream life is that I have written them down. And the minute that I go back to a journal from whatever year from when I was 10 or when I was 16 or when I was 24, if I read three words of that dream, the entire thing, like I see it all over again. Like I don't need to read anymore. Like it's so interesting how it connects so deeply into the brain, you know, and the soul too. And so one of the things, I mean, this is one of the ways that it's played out with my own mothering is that from the time my kids were, were tiny, every single morning I say, what did you dream last night? Because I feel like if they can start to train, like neither one of them is a active writer. My daughter loves to write. Um, she keeps a journal off and on. Um, but I feel like if they're able to do that, if they can access that, that subconscious, that it's, it deepens them in some specific way that I think is really important. Um, and it's weird because during the pandemic, I haven't been dreaming. I don't think I'm sleeping enough to remember my dreams. I'm sure they're happening. But over the past two weeks, I've had two amazing dreams and nothing excites me more in the morning than waking up and being like, I dreamed like I'm okay. Like I feel like I'm okay if I can get up and, and write down this dream as kooky as they are, you know? Have you ever um, written, has a dream ever inspired a story for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, They work their way into, into all kinds of, like Mm -hmm. there's one in Agatha um, that made its way in my agent made me chop up huge oh, no. lop. You know, she's like, oh, you got to get rid of most of this. I was like, Arr. um, yeah. but, um, she was right. Um, but they, they make their way in there all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the dreams I had last week, um, was that I was, we have this cabinet that we brought back from China. It's this old wedding cabinet. It's this huge thing that fits nowhere. Um, but I dreamed that I was in it with a family of lions like a big male lion and, and, and like the goal was for me to survive this. And I was like, well, this is symbolic. (laughs) So when the door of the thing opened and I came out with the lions, like 
being my pals, I was like, well, I've done it. I'm, I'm going to survive this damn pandemic. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's wonderful. I love that. Yeah. 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 Um, so we talked a little bit about, uh, that 3 a.m. wake up, speaking of dreams and how you, you use that time to write. Um, tell me about that sacred writing time and, and just mm-hmm. the logistics of writing a, a project and how you, um, how you find your, your narrative each morning to be able to continue a story across, you know, days, weeks, months, possibly years. Yeah, many years. Um, you know, I am like, I'm not one of these plotters. I, I've never plotted a story. I don't know where it's going when I start something like the one that I'm working on now. Don't know where it'll end up. I mean, I have a general idea and I need to know within two weeks for the synopsis, but, <laughs> um, I, I think like that's how I, I think of it. I mean, I have this term I use writer head. Um, like I get into writer head and I just start to think. And it's weird because this week, if you go look at my Twitter feed, I'm like suddenly obsessed with cinnamon. Uh, my character is has this thing about cinnamon and, you know, it's slowly starting to make sense to me as I write about her. But um, I, it's like, I just follow the seeds. Like, you know, mm-hmm. this thing starts to occur to me and I write a little bit about it and I'm like, oh, I need to know a little more. And so I start to do a little research and then I discover all these things and then I'm like, Oh my God. And then I start to write. Um, and it's like, I just follow my nose with things. Um, but it's very funny because this whole writer head thing, my husband and I, we married fairly late. Um, and we married, so we, like, it was a, it was a whirlwind. We met in September, September 8th, 2005. Um, we were engaged by Thanksgiving. We were married in February and six weeks later we moved to China. Um, and so. <laughs> I tell this funny story because I, I, whether or not I, you know, have kids, I'm a morning person. And um, so we didn't know all that much about each other when we moved to China. So it was kind of like you're either going to, you know, survive or fail. Um, But I remember like discovering he was not a morning person, you know, and like, and him discovering that I am not going to lounge around in bed on Saturday morning like I am up and I'm going to go right and you can't talk mm-hmm. to me like I don't want to be talking like you don't mess with my energy <laughs> he just was like I could just see him like who have I married like what is like from the time like I didn't take break when we moved to China like I think I took a week to get over the jet lag and then I was like at my computer and mm-hmm. at that point it was like 5 a.m. um but I'm I'm like a, I'm very militant about my my morning hours no matter what's happening. So it's it's a very funny thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so tell me a little bit more about. So you moved to China, and then um, how long were you there? And I think you mentioned um, uh, in the emails we exchanged beforehand that you adopted your kids. Um, at what point was that? Like, what was the timeline here between? <laughs> Um, meeting We're one crazy. another, getting married. A crazy family. Yeah, so we moved there in 2006. Um, we signed on for two years. We ended up staying for five years. Um, we adopted our daughter from Vietnam in 2008. So she spent her first few years in China. Um, and then we came back here in 2011. And we actually traveled back to China in 2015 and brought our son home. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about that transition for them. Um, again, before the interview, for the, for those of you who weren't in the little uh, studio with us, we were talking about, um, and I know I've talked about this before, about my four-year-old who's sleeping with us because of pandemic uh, loneliness and so on. Um, and you were saying, Kristen, that your daughter uh, was in bed with you guys for quite a few years, particularly following your return from China, right, through that transition. Yeah. Um, talk about a little bit about what that that transition was like both for them and then for you as you know, you became a mother um, in China. Yep. Yep. And um, very different life there, you know, 
um, I, I love it there. It's, I would move back in a second. Um, my husband won't move again. So <laughs> we're, we're in debate about that, but we, you know, we had a very solid life there. And then all of a sudden we were moving, we were back in a country, um, that she didn't know. And we didn't know anyone in the town that we moved to. And we had moved from, we were living in downtown Shanghai on the 26th floor of a high rise building, you know, in the middle of the city, um, with lots of playmates in the building and, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, we came back here, we were in a hotel for, we lived in a hotel for a couple months and then in a transition, you know, like a townhouse or something before we bought a home and blah, blah, blah. Um, so it was very hard on her. Um, and she started sleeping with us, um, during that time. And it took about four years <laughs> to, yeah. to end that habit. I mean, she just needed the extra, the extra connection, mm-hmm. you know, um, which was fine, you know, yeah. except for our backs, you know, <laughs> physically, emotionally, it was good. Physically, it's very challenging. Um, but yeah, she weathered it. She weathered it, but it was a lot to get used to. Um, yeah, definitely. For definitely. all of you. So tell me about being um, in China. So not your, I mean, it sounds like you had a good experience there, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a, another country, um, going through the transition of becoming a mother in a different country with yep. a child from another, the third country, right? Yeah. And we're actually a family of, we each, our original passports are from four different countries because my oh, husband's wow. from Ireland. Um, and I'm from the U.S. and then we have Vietnam and China. So, you know, we're quite the, we're quite the United Nations in our house. Um, <laughs> and, it, it, it was it was both simple and it was complex. I mean, I was so ready to be a mom. Um, and the nice thing about being in China, one of the wonderful things um, was that I had a lot of time. You know, I was not working a day job. Um, we had some help in our house, which is one of the great perks when you're in China is that, you know, you usually have somebody you hire to help you out at home. And that was great. Um, and so I had a lot of time to both write and be a mom. I, I, I always tell my husband now, <clears throat> I was a much better wife there because I had time, you know. Um, and here there's there's no time. I'm not, I'm not as good a wife. And there, you know, it was just an amazing thing to be able to do both fully. And I think oh, that wow. is something that. It rarely happens in the United States. Um, and it was a real gift for five years, you know, um, that I don't, I don't, you know, take lightly. So was was it a gift? Was it, um, primarily the ability to have help? Um, Mm -hmm. or was it, and and, and it was a day job? Yeah. Was it also? Go ahead. Well, I didn't work a day job and we had, you know, an IE, which is a woman who comes and works in your house. So, you know, for five years, I didn't do laundry. I didn't cook meals. I didn't clean the house. Um, and it sounds all very spoiled. You know, when I talk about it here, I'm always like, oh, God, this just sounds snotty. Um, but it's a very common thing there. And it's, you know, how the society works. And it's lovely. You know, um, RIE was my also my main Chinese teacher um, for the language, and she was really important to us. And uh, it, it it was just an amazing gift. I wrote my second novel while we were there, um, The Art of Floating, and I could be the best mom, the best writer. You know, not in terms of the quality of my work, but the most productive, and also the best wife because I had time and I wasn't strung out and exhausted and worried all the time. Can you talk about what the transition back to the U S was like for you? Like, so talk, I mean, sure. yeah. So what, yeah. why are U S mothers and mother writers 
such fractions of ourselves and always strung out and unable to be fully present in any of these yeah. roles. Why why yeah. am I hearing that from so many women <laughs> where it sounds like in China maybe it's or at least in your experience it was it was yeah. definitely very different. It is very different. Um because we're tired. Because there's so many things that we have to pay attention to. Um you know, between you have to feed your kids, right? You have to make sure you're shopping for them. You have to make sure, you know, all the things in the house are taken care of. You have to clean up the rice after dinner. Um, and you have to, it, you don't realize like how much energy goes into all of this until you don't have to do it like that. Like, I feel like I was given such a gift. But it's also a curse because I know, like, what the gift is. You know, like, I know what it feels like. Um, and it does feel selfish, you know, to want it, to, to want that existence. Um, but once you have it, you can't forget it. Um, so to is it selfish to- in China, though? No. No, it's what very, is it it's about just, American culture that makes it feel selfish? Do you think? Well, I think. Well, I don't think the way society is, you know, in terms of having somebody being able to hire somebody to work in your home, it's not really possible here, you know, because it's just, you know, it, it gets into a lot of different things, you know, um, who's available to work, who's going to work that that kind of a job who wants to work that kind of a job um how much money would it cost mm-hmm. um what's the value do people value that kind of um role and you know it, it's funny because when we first got to china the first year i would not hire somebody to work in our house and this is the way americans are when we you know this commonly known everybody said oh you're american you know You'll get by the time your second year, because you have a guilt that you have to ask for help, that it's there is a great amount of guilt. So the first year we were there, I had a a woman come to the house once every two weeks. People were like, are you insane? Like, just do what everybody does and hire. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we've got this. Um, And it was, you know. The, the first year was the hardest, you know, because I didn't speak the language, you know, I was studying, but I, you know, I didn't know where anything was. I didn't know how to get from A to B. Um, all the things that got easier over time, I didn't have, but I also didn't hire somebody in to help me um, because guilt, because we mm-hmm. are not supposed to ask for help. That's the thing. We are not supposed to admit that we need help. And I think that's at the core of it, you know. When, you know, and again, I'm generalizing, but when French expats arrive in China, they're like, come on in, work in our house. You know, we had neighbors who were Spanish. They had a live-in woman, you know, and, you know, at first they had no kids and then they had two and they had three. But, um, but we Americans are much more reticent about these things. But I came to, I mean, it was really hard to leave. It was really hard to give up that existence and that, you know, you also don't feel like as a writer. And I think this is what the the, the writing piece of this is, mm-hmm. that as a woman writer, we are not accustomed to being allowed the time to write. I think male writers are, you know, male writers. They don't have that kind of weight of responsibility and emotional responsibility for a family um Mm -hmm. and i think women have a very different experience so it's hard yeah Yeah, that guilt i love um the pinpointing the feeling of guilt and shame that accompanies asking for help yeah because that's such a vital thing to it goes back to the takes a village right in so many other cultures it, you don't even have to ask for help. It's built right. into the system of exactly. parenting. Yep. Um, and so the other, I'll share this with you. The other night I was feeling very overwhelmed between my day job and um, pandemic and, and 
writing and this podcast, which I love, but it, it takes a lot of time and effort. Absolutely. And, um, and I was, I had a moment of, of weakness in front of my daughter where I was very, I was upset and mm-hmm. my husband hugged me and, you know, he's, you know, it's okay. And my daughter came over and as a four year old hugged me and stroked my face and said, Mama, what's the matter? And I said, oh, trying to figure out how to talk to a four year old about it. I said, I feel like yeah. there's lots of things that I need to do and I don't know if I can do them all. And so that makes me feel very scared. And she said, Mama, you need to ask for help. <laughs> she said, You need to ask your friends for help. There and you go. The thought that like, a four year old could because she doesn't have that guilt and shame right that we are now accustomed to that it's so easy a four-year-old's like well of course if you feel scared and you have things you need to do that you can't do you ask for help so why is it so hard for us as you know but i'll tell you what most likely by the time she's a grown-up she'll Mm -hmm. have all that guilt and shame hopefully not you know hopefully not but but it's so hard I don't know how we're going to work it out of our culture, you know? No. Um, yeah. It's perpetuated. Even if yeah. we, as parents, as mothers try to, um, you know, offer different messaging and say, right. it's okay to ask for help and, and to take time and to right. do these things, which my parents certainly did. They, you know, yeah, I never heard, Oh, you should feel guilty for taking time for yourself. But yet that's, that's there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Nope. It's um. I don't know how we can change just the structure of our society to make that happen. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. No. It'll, and it's so interesting that you had had a very different experience in China. Yeah. But it's and not a, a universal experience, right? It's no. Of- no. And it's and again, even talking about it, I feel guilty. You know, because mm-hmm. I feel like a shame, like. I'm ashamed, I feel ashamed that I should even think that I deserve that ever again. You know, mm-hmm. that, that ability to write every day without distraction, which is really, truly the only thing, you know, I'm not talking about family. I'm talking about, you know, um, career and that kind of thing is really, truly the only thing that I want to do. Right. And, and then to be able to say that and to be able to achieve that, um, you know, there's shame and guilt even just saying it out loud so it's you know yeah and that you're I mean here you are saying that you still feel that shame and guilt as a published author with is it three books four books yeah three you're about three books and one in progress and I hear that from women who've published you know 15 books and I hear that from women who've published no books where they say I don't have the right to claim yeah. that time because I'm not earning exactly. um, income from it. Yep. Right. So it's like, it doesn't matter if you've not published no. anything. Published exactly. 20. No, the internal struggle with it um, is the same, uh-huh. no matter if you've published or not. Yeah. And that is, it's excruciating because I've always said, and people have argued with me, I can't not write. And and different people have said to me, of course you can. I'm like, no, I can't. Not like I can't. Mm-hmm. Like no matter what. Um, so you know, yeah. the struggle goes on. Yeah, and and why not be able to claim that, right? If it's as right. um, important to you as breathing, and you can claim right. this, the like air to breathe, why can't you claim exactly. this, the time and space to do something that feels as urgent to you as anything yeah yeah and i i am a big believer i i think you know people go back and forth you know are we born writers are we you know and i i know that different people probably have different um experiences with that but Mm -hmm. i have always firmly believed that i was born this way you know and that for whatever reason whatever cosmic reason i am supposed to be doing this Um, yeah but the world doesn't exactly work with you on that. So you gotta keep keep pushing against it. Keep trying to change the world. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. One book at a time. 
that feels like a great place because we've reached the hour. Let's all just keep driving to change the world. I know it's, it's flown by. Oh my goodness. What a great conversation. And wonderful. Thank you, Kristen, for coming on and sharing your experience and just for a really fun conversation, too. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. You're, I know it's hard, but you're really putting something important out there. So thank I really you. appreciate it. Thank you. It feels important to yeah. to talk about these issues. So Absolutely. I appreciate your um, willingness and time to come on and talk and stick around after the fact for a few minutes so I can say goodbye. But First, I'm going to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Um, and just again, you can watch the video, listen to the podcast and read the interview transcript on writermothermonster.com. And you can buy Kristen's books um, by visiting the bookshop link on our website. And there you will find the books by all of our other authors for sale as well. And Bookshop is a great alternative to um, other platforms I won't name that are the big uh, bohemists in bookselling. Bookshop goes to authors, to indie bookstores. Um, you know, please shop at Bookshop or at your local indie bookstores. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please also consider becoming a patron or patroness to help keep this podcast going. So thank you all again. See you next week. And Kristen, um, Stick around for a second. Will do. Thank you all. Thanks all.